morning. What a beautiful reminder that we have this joy to be pure and blameless. Thank you, Choir. If you could turn with me to John 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. As I was thinking this morning, praying about, should we stand? Should we sit? I was thinking about why do we, why do we as elders address at times, stand out of reverence for the word? And I think it's because we really want you to hear. We want to hear and we want you to believe and receive this is God's very word to you. Let's think about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha being busy saying, Jesus, make her come help me. Jesus says, she's chosen a better thing. It's not going to be taken from her. And Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. This passage this morning, I think it is a sit passage. We're going to sit at Jesus' feet. If we read this, the disciples were just crushed with the news that Jesus is going to the cross. They're confused. And this beautiful passage speaks such great love and assurance to our hearts. And we need to hear this great, great affection that Jesus has for them and for us. When I was a kid, we memorized this passage um, as a church together. And so it's been really special to me over the years. God has really used it. But I pray that it would continue this morning, even as we dwell in it. We would hear the greatness of Jesus' love. Listen now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to. Pre- would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you had known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The Word of God. Today is the um, the final Sunday of the choir season. If you didn't know, they run from about September into May. And, and so I, I think we owe them uh, a deep... Uh, gratitude. Obviously, this morning you could you could hear that as they uh, uh, led us in worship around the song in which they sang. Three years ago, uh, we were without a, a choir director, and so uh, Bill Gabbard agreed to uh, lead uh, the choir. And and that one that was great in the in the sense of we had somebody leading the choir, but to to know that someone who professionally leads 
uh, choirs to be your choir director is even uh, a greater. Bill has a full-time job with the United States Army. And the part that he serves in the United States Army is with the Army Field Band, which part of the field band, you tend to think of it only as the instruments, is also the vocals. And so they travel uh, the country performing uh, for our government in different places. And uh, this is his uh, last season uh, leading the choir. And so we want to express our gratitude to uh, Bill uh, for the three years he's led us. So please uh, thank Bill. Bill did not want um, the attention, but we don't always get what we want, Bill. Now I want to turn your attention back to this passage that uh, was just read. I think it's important that we recognize that Jesus often isn't who we think he is, nor does he do what we expect him to do. And there's never a passage that does this more in that category than John 14. We expect him to say one thing and he says another. We expect him to explain what he's talking about in one way and he explains it in another. He, he talks about his work. And we make much of that his work is finished on earth in just a few chapters. That'll actually even be said. It is finished. But he says, I have other work to do. We tend to think of after the cross, Jesus was done, but he's not nearly done. And so what makes this so surprising, it's in the context of his followers' heart being troubled. They've been following him now for three years, and he says, I'm leaving you. And they're troubled. And what's so shocking and surprising to us is how he comforts their trouble as he ministers to his disciples on this last night of his life. Now, I'm going to tie this uh, to a movie. I'm going to tie it to the movie because my hero growing up was a Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood had three careers. Most uh, movie actors only get one, but he had three. He had his early, the Spaghetti Westerns, where he made himself very famous and very used. And I know that's before many of your time. In the 1950s, that's what he was known for, just being the cowboy where his lips would move and then the sound would be just a little off. Then uh, came uh, a second career where he became uh, the Dirty Harry, the Josie Wells, the same personality, but now the, the words and uh, the lips matched because it was being done by Hollywood. But he became fairly famous. And then he had this big gap in his career. And he came back as the director of the movies. And when he began to direct his own movies, he sort of uh, 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 resurrected this, I'm going to uh, bring vengeance. I'm going to set everything right. I'm, I'm the executor of true justice, a kind of movie like Pale Rider. 
but it was in the Grand Torino that I thought that he presented the gospel the clearest. What? Clint played Walt Kowalski, a Polish auto worker who had retired and he was a former Korean uh, vet, war vet, and he lived in a neighborhood that was in an incredible transition and not in a transition that he wanted in Detroit in a, in a way that he hated because it brought foreigners into his community and he did not like foreigners. And nobody liked Walt Kowalski. Nobody could stand being in his presence, including his pastor, of all people. But two Hmong kids who were living next door to him pursued him, befriended him, loved him. And he learned to begin to love them and began to protect them. And we saw just a little bit of Dirty Harry when the girl, the teenage girl was being threatened by the gang. gang he pulled out his 45, his old service revolver and, and threatened them. That, that was the moment where we said, okay, there's Dirty Harry. He's going to straighten this neighborhood up. But it, it's not until the gang brought violence to this family that lived next door that the young teenage boy says, uh, what are you going to do about it? What's your plan? Because he knows he's going to do something. And the first thing he does is he locks this teenage boy in the basement so that he can't participate in his plan. And Walt's got a number of guns. We've seen them throughout the movie. But he leaves them all at home. He goes to, at night, where this gang has taken over this house in the neighborhood and he calls them out and they threaten him with their guns. And, and so at a moment where they think he's going to pull a gun, he reaches into his jacket and pulls out nothing but his finger. And they shoot him dead. Do you remember the scene? He does the crucifixion. Because here's the deal. We tend to think if we didn't know the story of Jesus... That Jesus has come to make everything right by running the streets of Jerusalem red with the blood of the enemies of God. But because we know the story, we lose the idea that Jesus has come to get rid of evil. Not through evil's death, but through his own. That's the grand Torino Jesus. Who has come not to inflict their death to rid evil, but his own. If we didn't know better, we would expect a dirty, hairy Jesus because they did. Their hearts are incredibly troubled. They're looking for the dirty, hairy Jesus. And Jesus says to them, I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare home, a future home for you. Jesus begins to talk about home when their hearts are far from home. In order to talk about home, uh, uh, to kind of give us a, a theology of home, 
in the Bible. That is, to understand how the Bible understands home, I, I need to let you a little bit of context of my own home. I, when I grew up, we moved nine times that I can remember. That's nine different schools, nine different homes. And it's not because my dad was in the military. He was before I was born, but not since when I was born. I I wish I could say that was because we were just following what the military said. But that wasn't true. I followed those growing up years of moving around with five years at college. That was the longest place I'd ever lived at the time. Three years in Atlanta as a teacher, three years in Tampa working for the Navigators, two years in seminary that should have been three, three years in Knoxville, Tennessee as an assistant pastor, five years planting a church in Murfreesboro, five years in Fairhope, Alabama. You're getting the, the picture. The last 10 years, the longest place I have ever lived in my life, it's also the longest place my children have ever lived. You see, when we got here, we said we were going to put down roots. We were going to give our children a home, a place to belong. But I have to ask, are we home? Are they home? If you ask my children, they have lived, depending on which child you're speaking to, four or five different locations. Not just homes, but locations, cities. And what I tell them and what I would tell you if this was your life is I am sorry and you're welcome. And both are true. We tend to think that regret and hope have to be mutually exclusive and they're not. I say I'm sorry because that makes sense. To move a family around, to move people around is disorienting. Who knows that better than you military guys and girls? You know that's true. It disorients the whole family. It disheartens them. It discourages. You make a friend and then you have to give that friend up because you're moving again. It's the story of nomads, not the story of home. But you're welcome too. Home is more than a place. That's the whole thrust of this passage. Is that home is more than a place. And what I tell my children is that because you're a Christian, because you're part of the family of God, you've got family everywhere in the world. Because many of us, many of you, grow up in this place, you often miss out on the reality that the church is everywhere. And therefore, you have family everywhere. And therefore, you are home everywhere because you have family everywhere. And not only is home not a place, this passage teaches that home is a person. Do you hear what Jesus says when they say, how do we get there? I am the way. And Philip will come up with a question. Well, what is what does the father look like? And he says, you've seen me. You've seen the father. What is he saying? He says, home is a person, not merely a place. You notice when he begins to talk about preparing this place that has many rooms, he doesn't describe it. He fills it. 
He doesn't describe it. And he fills it with two categories of beings. The Father and the Son, and then us. I think that's important. Because that makes sense when he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And where I go, I will come back and bring you where? Home? A place? No, to myself. To myself. Roots in a place with people is a good thing. And nobody knows that more than a nomad like me. But I want you to understand it is also limiting. The Imago Dei, the image of God, cannot be regulated to one group of people in one place. It's bigger than that. And that's why we need people from every uh, tongue and a people group in the world. We at least need to reflect the people of our own community. Because then we can get a little fuller picture of of the image of God that we as often one segment of a culture and one segment of the people of the world cannot give. And the truth is, none of us are home yet. None of us are home. Both roots and wanderings Both point us homeward because neither are the final home. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you because my work here is almost done. And it is. In a few chapters, he's going to announce from the cross, it is finished. Which begs the question, what's finished? What about his work here is finished and what work is left to be done? In order to do that, I I just want to create this image of a temple. We don't tend to have temples today. I know we call a few buildings a temple, but we don't make sacrifices. We don't tend to have these particular rules about entering that building that was required of the temple. You you got to understand this imagery of a place, imagery of a place where you can meet and be in the presence of God. It was from the very beginning, in the dawn of time, in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve walked with their God. Understand that the temple was the whole earth because God came to be with his people. That was all lost. When an Adam and Eve said, I would rather have a different life than this. When I would rather have you and. God said, well, then you don't get this place either. And they banished them from the presence of God. And so whenever God showed up in the Old Testament, what did they do? They built an Ebenezer. They built a place, a reminder that God met us here. And that goes on century after century after century until... And until they're in the wilderness and God says, build me a tent, build me a tabernacle, a place where I can come and be with my people. You can worship with me. You can be with me. But you have to prepare yourself to come in. And it also translated over into the permanent temple when David said, it's not right for me to have a permanent home, but God not. And so he was still meeting in a tent with his people. But then he built a temple under Solomon. But all these rules 
of purification, washing yourself before you went in in order to be ready, to be present with God. At the cross, that's brought to an end. Because all of the requirements to be holy in the presence of God were met by the one who said, I will deal with evil not through your death, but through mine. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why he says on the cross it is finished. And the curtain of the temple to the holy of holies was torn in two so that it would be permanently, we were acceptable, all of us, before God. Because He literally took our place. That's what He means when it is finished. But His work isn't finished. Sometimes we, 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 we want to, to, to put a finality to our salvation, the work for our salvation by saying it is finished. And it is true. <clears throat> but the Bible tends to talk about salvation broader than we do. We tend to talk about it in our, our being justified, the standing before God, our status before God, and that's important and it is part of what salvation is. But there's another part of it, and that is getting all the way home. What good is the new status if we don't get a new place? If we don't make it home. And so Jesus says, while their hearts are troubled, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. This is outside of uh, Psalm 23. This is often the most quoted passage at funerals. Because our hearts are troubled at funerals. We know something wrong has happened. We know that something is out of order. Something is broken whenever we attend a funeral. It doesn't matter how old the person is or how young the person is. Sometimes it's more acute when the person is young. I understand that. There's something about even ordering our dysfunction, our brokenness. And one of the things is we shouldn't be burying children. But we shouldn't be burying anyone. And we know that. And so Jesus comes in to these troubled hearts this way and says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it has many, many rooms. So the natural question that comes up is the one that Thomas asked. Thomas, in verse 5, <coughs> how do we know the way? I know you're talking about preparing a home for us, and, and that's all exciting, and you get to go there first. But where's home? How will we know when we get there? Now remember, this is before Google Maps. Long before anybody had tablets, long before those little computers in your car, Jesus' directions were a little vague. Thomas is afraid that they might not get there, particularly if they don't have Jesus showing the way. So Jesus' answer is odd. Verse 6, I am the way. You want to know how you get home? Through me. Then he say that? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father but through me. It's often we take a verse 
And we like it so much, we put it on the back of an index card or we write it and we, or we stitch it and put it on the wall. And this is one of those verses, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we divorce it from its context. Jesus isn't talking about your salvation here. Not the way we talk about salvation, how we're right with God. He's talking about the ultimate salvation. We go from here to home. And he says, I'm the way to get there. I'm the way home. And in fact, nobody gets home except through me. That's what he's trying to communicate here in his answer. He's not talking about geography. He's talking about relationship. If you have a relationship with me, if you believe in me, and that what he says over and over again, he says it twice at the beginning and at the end. Believe in me. Believe me. Jesus' work is to get us home to the Father's house where there are plenty of rooms for all of us. That raises another question. Thomas had a great question. And Philip, and the answer that Jesus gives to, to uh, uh, Thomas raises a question among Philip. You see it in verse 8. Philip wants to know, okay, great, you've been talking about home. But what is the Father like? What he's doing is Jesus is talking about the Father is home. Where the Father is, is where we're going. It's not so much the, uh, the crudiments, the, the, the decoration of heaven. It's not how many rooms there are and how many of them you get or the mansions in the sky. It's about a person. It's about the Father. And so Philip naturally asks, is what is the Father like? How will we know when we have seen the Father? Is he a hardcore disciplinarian? Is he somehow a hard-to-please commodron? Is he somehow a distant deity? And Philip literally is asking, for those of you who do jigsaw puzzles, is give me a picture that goes on the front of the box so I know how it looks when it's supposed to be put together. So that when we get there, we know what it looks like. We will know we made it home if we just had a picture of home. What's Jesus' answer to that question? You find it in verse 9. The Father is like me. You want to know what it's going to be like? It's like being with me permanently. It's like being with me wholly. It's like being with me without, without the brokenness of this world. It's not what you expected. And that's not the answers that we would have expected him to give. Their hearts are troubled. And he says, believe me. Believe in me. Now let's wrap this up and bring it home. Pun intended. C.S. Lewis called the world in which we live in right now the Shadowlands. He called it the Shadowlands because it's not the ultimate place that we are going He called that place the better country. But he called this place the Shadowlands because everything in this world is a shadow, a type, a kind of what is to come that will be so much better. That's why he called it a better country. And so he's, he's beginning to describe that, or we're trying to describe, that home here, for better or for worse, 
is a shadow of the home to come. This is why C.S. Lewis will say, the homesickness you now feel is because you are not yet home. Home here is a mere shadow of the home there. And therefore, the best home here is only like those four pieces of shrimp and cocktail sauce that you get before a meal. Or that little cup of Maryland uh, uh, crab soup. It's only supposed to be not satisfying, but an awakening of your taste buds. It's supposed to be, mmm, I want more. No, the meal's coming. That's the more. The best home here, and I know many of you would begin to describe your home in positive, wonderful ways. And, and you need to thank God for that because not everybody has that experience. But please understand, put it in its proper perspective. And we're always trying to do that here. The proper perspective of the best home is that it's the four pieces of shrimp and cocktail sauce. It's an appetizer. It's not the main meal. Our mistake in the evangelical church is that we make a good home the goal. Don't let me run over that. Or you allow your heart to move quickly from it. When we make a good home the end, it is, is, and it is, is, as is, making those four pieces of shrimp and cocktail sauce the main meal. When your good home is all that we are about as a a church, when that's what we communicate to the world, that if you become a Christian, you can have a good home. We've made the appetizer the meal. It is becoming part of His home. And therefore, our home is an appetizer to that home. I think that is both a rebuke, but also an encouragement. It's a rebuke in this way. We need to be very, very careful. Many, many people, many, many people, and more and more people who are coming to see Jesus are coming from broken homes, not good homes. And therefore, when we are putting out there That the goal, and we don't even use it by goal, we just often talk about what a good family looks like. That gives people the impression that the only way to Jesus is through a good home. And that is wrong. But there's also an encouragement. He's not saying don't have good homes. Don't work toward good homes. Because the better the home the more of an appetizer it is. I mean, who wants bad shrimp? Or bad cocktail sauce? Now let me speak to those who come from a bad home. Because your home is also a pointer to the home. Your experience in whatever home you came out of The reason why you know it's not good is because you were built for that which was good. The only way you know it's not is because deep in the recesses of your heart was placed a longing to go home. 
where someone welcomes you where you are and is glad you're home. That experience of people who are coming from dysfunction and problems in their home is becoming the vast majority of people in the church because it's the vast majority of the people that are in our culture. If that ever changes without the culture changing, then we've done something wrong. Do you understand that if the church is the only place where there are perfect intact homes, and I know nobody says their home is perfect, but when we present it that way, and, and the, the community is not coming here, then we've missed the mission. If we're going to be faithful to the mission, it means that more and more people will come from homes that are broken. Because that is where, who is out there. And the people, and we are the ones who are communicating what God says. Welcome. You're home. This is family. I think that's important. But it's also true of the church. It's not just true of your home. It's also true of the church. The church is a shadow land. Why is it a shadow land? Because you're here. If you wanted the perfect church, we all have to leave. Because as soon as you put one person in the church, it's no longer perfect. I think that's important for us to recognize that, yes, we're not great at communicating. I wish we were better. But that's part of being part of a broken church. Sometimes we get this impression that the church is the perfect place. It's not. It's not close. Because it's made up of us. Yes, Jesus is here. But we are too. We want so much to hear somebody finally say to us, welcome home. And it be home. Where somebody looks at us and says, I've been preparing this place for you. I've been expecting you. That message preaches. Because everybody is looking for home. Whether you come from a good home or not so good home. Everybody wants to be home. You might say, well, it's not for me. There's no way God would allow me to come home. I can't even get into my own home at home, much less God's home. Let me end with Ernest Hemingway. He tells a story of a father and a son who have become incredibly at at odds to the point where the son runs off. His name is Paco. And the father goes looking for him but can't find him. All he wants is him to come home. But he can't find him to tell him or to invite him back home. They've said some things that are horrible to one another. They've done some things that are horrible to one another. And so this father takes out an advertisement there in Madrid, Spain, and says this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon tomorrow. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day, 800 Pacos show up. What does that tell you? They were all far from home. 
We all long for home. And we long to hear somebody say, come home, all is forgiven. I love you. That's what the Father is saying to you today. No matter how far you've been from Him. No matter what you have done, all is forgiven. He's not winking at what you have done. He's paid for it in full. He's built a room for you. That's why he says there's many rooms. There's room for all of us. There's no one in this room, no one's child in this room, there's no one that we know that can't come home. All is forgiven. I love you. Come home. It is also the message of the church. How many Pacos would show up if we said all is forgiven? Come home. And that was all our message. It's not all is forgiven, but. It's not all forgiven if you'll just get your life straight and then come in. It's not all is forgiven if you can give enough, serve enough, do enough. All is forgiven because all the work has been already done. The Father has absorbed the entire cost for us. He's built the home. And He is the home. Come home. Let's pray. Father, you say you are the way. And I pray in this room, all of us, whether we've been with, with you for many, many years, but we have always doubted whether we were going to make it home. Whether our lives were worthy enough for you to welcome us in. Or maybe it's the first time for somebody in the room, Father, that truly feels horrible about what they have done. Father, help us all to hear through the work of your Spirit. All is forgiven. Come home. And I pray, Father, that we might take this message first to each other's ears and hearts and then to the world that needs desperately to know you are home. The one that we have always longed to, the one that our best homes point to, that our worst homes prove exist. Help us see that, long for it, live for it. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you make us a taste of that for everyone who comes into this facility, everyone who touches a human being who is yours in this place, that we recognize that we have an obligation, a responsibility, a burden to tell all the Pacos of the world they are welcome to come home. We've been expecting them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.